If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of Exodus, looking at chapter 2, picking up where we left off in this series, going through the book of Exodus. We'll be looking at the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 2 this morning. It should be on the screen behind me if you aren't able to find it in time, but Exodus is the second book in your Bible. It would go Genesis and then Exodus, so it will be toward the beginning, and we're toward the beginning of the book. So Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 10. I'll read that. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. It's a pretty classic misdirection in movies, particularly in the beginning. You have the the narrator come in, and he's describing the hero of our tale, the, the superhero that you're going to see, his strength and glory and honor and courage. And then the, the camera pans, and it shows a pipsqueak. The last person you would expect to be the one that we're talking about here, somebody who's small, someone who's helpless, someone who seems like they would be the last person described by the title of hero. I remember being in the theaters when I was about eight, uh, watching the first Spider-Man movie, and and I knew coming in who Peter Parker was, so none of this was really a surprise to me, but I I remember the movie starts with Peter Parker, Spider-Man, asking, who am I? Are you sure you want to know? Because the story of his life is not for the faint of heart, but it focuses on his relationship to Mary Jane Watson, and the camera shows her in all her beauty, and a man with his arm around her, presumably her her man, her boyfriend, and he says, nope, that's not me. And then it shows the guy sitting behind them in the next row, eating a sandwich and spilling mustard on his shirt, and he says, I would even take him. And then you hear a hand batting on the bus window of what they're in, and he says, that's me as people are laughing and pointing, as he's chasing the bus, trying to get it to stop for him to get on. That's how we're introduced to the hero of our story in that movie. He doesn't seem like much of a hero at all. In in today's verses, we're introduced to the earthly hero, at least, of Exodus. God is actually the main character. He's the one doing all the heroic things, as we'll see. But Moses is the instrument through whom God accomplishes all these deeds. And his introduction, it highlights the idea that God is actually the one in charge. God's actually the one moving the pieces on the board. He's actually the one watching over every aspect of what's happening. Even the earthly hero, he has very little to do with everything that we see in our story. His own survival, his own placement as God's chosen deliverer. So you might expect the hero to be born with lightning crashing in the background, with a thunderstorm 
for him to be born and to immediately fight off the Egyptians who were coming to try and kill him. For his first words to be freedom, deliverance, something along those lines. But instead, when we're introduced to Moses, the earthly hero of our tale, he's a baby. He's someone who needs help, who gets help at every step along the way. By the time we finish today's verses, the introduction to Exodus in its barest form is really over. The, all the characters are in place. We have the, the setting of slavery is established. We have God's chosen instrument, his deliverer, on the scene. We know exactly where things are going to head from here. We're ready for the real action to start, the meat of our story to begin. But in today's verses, Moses introduces himself to us through a series of events that are designed to show that God is actually the one in charge that God is actually the hero of our tale. So from today's text, we'll see three provisions of God's deliverer, three things that God provides his deliverer with. And the first provision of God's deliverer that we can see in our verses this morning is that God provides the deliverer's life. He provides the deliverer's life. Look back at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Something we need to remember here as we read this series, this beginning instances at the beginning of Exodus, whenever Moses introduces himself, is that... He is one of the primary people in this story, and the original audience of this book already knew who he was. By the time he's writing these books, the the first five books of the Bible, it's toward the end of his life. They were probably written and then quickly read to the people, while Moses was probably either still alive or had only just died. So they already knew him. It's not like he has to start from square one with them. So the point isn't so much to say, yes, there was a man called Moses and he was born because they already knew those things. The point in this story that Moses is trying to get across is the instances of his birth which show something about how God was going to relate to him and his people. That first verse, whenever you look at it, is about as bland an introduction as you could possibly think of. Nameless man takes nameless woman as his wife and then then they have a baby. Okay, that could be literally anyone's origin story. There's nothing about that that really gives you much information. There's nothing about that that's exciting, certainly. But what's significant here, the reason that Moses gives the the tribe, wherever he says it's a, a Levite man marrying a Levite woman, the reason he gives those particulars is that he's showing the people who read this, the people who hear this, that when God provided for them a deliverer, Whenever he gave them a man to stand between them and God as an advocate. Whenever he gave them a man to perform religious acts and deeds, functions. Really, whenever he gave them their first priest. When he gave them Moses, he gave them an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. Which would eventually become the priestly tribe. Moses arrives to deliver the people from among the people. He is an Israelite. It would be easy for you to think that he's not an Israelite based on his story, that he just shows up out of nowhere. He comes out of Midian. He's raised in an Egyptian household. It would be easy for you to hear all this and think, no, that's an outsider coming in to deliver the people. 
But his origin story shows you that he's actually rising up from among the people. He's rising up with them to pull them up out of their slavery with him. It's not someone from the outside coming to save them, to rescue them. This is deliverance that's coming from within their own house. He's an Israelite. And that's important because it would be easy to think that he would be an outsider here. But it's not just any house, not just any Israelite house that he comes from. He's from the tribe of Levi. You'll see as the the story of Exodus unfolds that the tribe of Levi becomes that priestly tribe. They're the ones who devote their lives to God's service in the tabernacle. They're the ones who are eventually the ones in charge in the temple. They're the ones who are killing the animals for the sacrifices. They're the ones who sprinkle the blood on the altar and on the people. So God, before they knew what a priest was, was already giving a priest to them. All of his origin shows you the role that Moses was going to play in and among the people. And Moses had absolutely nothing to do with that. God's provided the life of an Israelite priest as his deliverer's life. And he keeps providing for Moses. And Moses keeps providing nothing for himself. He has no real part to play here. When God provides the deliverer with the life of one who escaped death, the deliverer had no part in his own escape from death. Moses has nothing to do with his own survival, just like any other baby, really. His parents bear a son, which we saw last week is a death sentence for Moses. The first thing that should happen to him by the law, by the decree of Pharaoh, is that he gets thrown into the Nile River. That's what's supposed to happen. He's supposed to die as a sacrifice. But his mother just can't do it. She would never do it. So she comes up with a plan. She hides him. For three months, around the time when a baby is small enough, when a baby tends to sleep enough, if you're lucky, uh, that they're more easily hidden in the home, that they're just kind of there. They eat, they sleep, they poop. They don't do anything else. There's no way that anyone else would be able to know that it's there until they come into the house and are able to see that child just sitting there. But then in about three months, remember, he you know, really gets some lungs on him when he starts to be awake through more of the day when he's more active, when he's more vocal, when he can't be hidden anymore. His mother says, I've got to do something. I've got to try to save him. Okay, my son Peter, named uh, partially after someone that I've already mentioned today, he is now five weeks old. And he can do absolutely nothing without us helping him. He can do absolutely nothing if we don't do it for him. Even sometimes when we're helping him, Sometimes he's a real hindrance to us helping him. He is very often, almost, if we weren't there, the cause of his own death. Not the cause of his own survival. He would be the reason why he's not here anymore. He's the one trying to climb out of his swing. He's the one refusing his bottle, keep batting it away even though he's dying, he's starving of of, uh, hunger. He's the one pulling the blanket over his face to try to suffocate. Okay, the reason he is alive is because he has someone watching over him. It's not because he's a big, strong hero. It's not because he knows what he's doing. And it's the same with Moses as he survives in these verses. But I want to make a connection here between what's happening with Moses and something that we're going to see in the rest of Scripture. Just as his birth in the house of Levi pointed forward to the consecration of the tribe of Levi as a priestly tribe, Moses also, in this instance, points forward to the coming Messiah in a similar sense. 
the true and better priest who is to come. If you know your Bible, Moses points forward to Jesus in this specific life occurrence. In Matthew 2, just after the wise men have visited Jesus and God gave Joseph a a dream to get Jesus out of Israel and ironically here back into Egypt to be saved, here's what it says in Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Moses here is in Egypt. He's condemned to die as a newborn boy, but he's saved from that genocide. And Jesus is sent to Egypt as a newborn boy to escape a similar genocide of all the young boys in that region. Whenever the Bible repeats stories like this, they're they're there to help you make the connections between the characters. So that when you see Jesus get saved from that attempted death as a boy, you're reminded of another deliverer who had a a similar story. You see, God provides the deliverer with the life of one who has escaped death. And even the way that Moses escapes death here, the way Moses survives, that's another connection that gets made for us. Look back at verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So Moses' mother says, I have to save this boy. I cannot let them take him. I cannot let him die. And this is her plan. Because there is a coming death, she constructs a basket. She waterproofs it. She shuts him inside. And then she sends it out into the water. Okay, Moses is perfectly safe within that vessel. But if he were outside of that vessel, he would die. Outside it is only death. And now we don't, we don't know the details here. It's unlikely that she just shoved him out into the Nile and said, well, see ya. You're in a basket now. You'll be fine. That, that's not probably what happened. She probably placed him among kind of the reeds, among kind of the, the banks there so that he would stay there, be saved and protected so that she could visit him to feed him, to, to keep him alive, to make sure of, uh, that he was going to continue to survive. It's unlikely that she just sent him out into the river and waved goodbye uh, before taking him there. But let me point out something specific here that I think might make the connection a little bit clearer for you. That word basket in verse 3, it's used several times in the Bible, but really only in two places. It's used here in Exodus 2, right there at the beginning, and it's also used in Genesis 6 through 8 several times. The more natural translation of that word isn't basket, it's ark, it's boat. In Genesis 6.14, whenever God speaks to Noah and tells him to, to build the ark, he says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So you see, just as Noah and his family were saved from death by being shut in the ark so that God's plan could continue through that line, Moses is saved from death. He's shut inside his own little ark. He's perfectly safe inside this vessel. He's protected by the God who is providing for his life, who's saving him from death and judgment through water, who's saving him, providing for him, even though he's surrounded by death. And I don't think Moses' mother is just giving up. She's not 
obeying Pharaoh's command and saying, well, I guess it's time for him to die. She's doing this. She's putting him out there in the hope that God would save her boy. She saw him as beautiful. She saw him as worthy of being protected. She believed that there was something more for her son than a cold, watery death. And that's why she did what she did, in faith. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Her plan to save her son, it was an act of faith on her part, but it was part of God's work and his plan to provide his deliverer with life rather than death. So God provides that for his deliverer, but he also provides the deliverer's circumstances we can see here. He provides Moses his life, yes, but he also provides the deliverer's circumstances. That's the second provision of God's deliverer from today's verses. Look back at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse uh, for you from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When you read these verses, if you didn't know what was about to happen, if you didn't know kind of the story of Moses, or if you hadn't gotten to the end of verse 10 where we have already gotten to today, your first thought whenever you start in verse 5 should be, uh-oh. And we know at the end of chapter 1, the king has said all the Hebrew boys are to be killed when they're born by the midwives. They didn't do it. He told all his people, you see a Hebrew boy, you throw him in the river. This boy who is born, he, he's a Levite. Okay, we know, verse 1, he is a Hebrew. He's been placed outside in a basket. His sister's there, but she's like at a distance. She's not guarding the basket. She's just there to watch what happens to the basket. And who's the first one who finds it? An Egyptian. But not just like a regular Egyptian, Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, Moses has been sent to the enemy here. He is behind enemy lines as a baby in a basket. He's not where it's safe and easy for him. He's in a place that reeks of death. Death is the natural end for him in this basket, in this river. And even that is by the design of God. I'm going to be drawing parallels between the life of Moses and the life of Jesus throughout this entire book. Moses is there to point us to Jesus, who is the true and better Moses. So Moses here is sent to live among the people who are his enemies, just as Christ came to earth to live among his people who are rebelling from him and in sin. Moses here, he's completely helpless. When they opened up his little ark, they saw him crying. They probably had heard him crying, and that's what let them know that there was a baby in a basket over there. And then they notice, this is a Hebrew baby. Okay, so at that point... Moses is done. Okay, Moses is dead. He has no chance. They found the baby. The baby's a boy. He's a Hebrew. The circumcisional evidence is right there. The next thing that you would expect to happen, the next sentence in this story should be, and so they threw him in the river. Exodus would be a very short book at that point. 
That's what we think is going to happen. But instead, Pharaoh's daughter, she takes pity on him. She saw in him the same thing that his mother saw in him. That he had a life that was worth saving. That was worth protecting. Though Moses is as humble and lowly as you could be here. Though he is a baby crying out into the abyss. God still watches over him. He still provides for his life by turning the heart of Pharaoh's daughter against the command of her own father and in the favor of this little child who could do nothing for her, who had nothing that he could give her, who had no reason to continue living. I briefly mentioned this last week in talking about the the Hebrew midwives, but I think it's worth noting here the importance of women who are willing to do the right thing throughout the beginning of this book of Exodus. Okay, we have Shifra and Pua, the midwives who are named for their courage, even though Pharaoh is nameless because they refuse to kill the Hebrew children. We have Moses' mother who gets named later, who defied the orders of the king to save her child, to save her baby. We have Moses' sister, who again gets named later, who watched over him among the reeds, who stuck her neck out and said, hey, if you want to keep that baby, I bet I can find someone who will help you keep him alive. We have Pharaoh's daughter, who didn't care about her father's plan for the kingdom, didn't care about his genocide, didn't care about the stability of his kingdom, about who was going to be under his rule, about how long that was going to last. She just wanted to save a little baby who was crying. Were it not for the actions of these women, the exodus doesn't happen. Our story ends very early on. Now, I don't don't want to oversell this. This isn't a Disney movie where the the point, the moral at the end is girl power. Okay? The, The point of exodus is not that girls rock. But within the exodus, we do see that women have a vital part to play in God's plans for his people. Ladies, you have a role here. You have something to do here. You have a job here, a place and a purpose here among God's people and in his plans. That place, that purpose, it's not simply always to nod along silently while men tell you what to do. Now, we're going to see bad examples of what women can or shouldn't do uh, later on in the book of Exodus. But the thing that the midwives were commended for in chapter 1 The thing that Moses' mother is commended for in Hebrews 11, the common theme there is that they feared God rather than man. They feared God rather than other women, rather than anyone else. So you do have a part to play. You aren't off to the side. And you might not know exactly what that is, and that's okay, but let me just recommend to you to start where they started. Fearing God rather than anyone else, I think that's a good place to be. I think that's a good place for you to start doing whatever God would have for you in his plans. Loving and sacrificing for the good of the humble, the lowly. Taking pity on those who need it. I think that's a good place to start. I think it's a good place for anyone to start. That's not necessarily particular to women. I think we can all pursue those ends. And for Moses, when Pharaoh's daughter played her part... When Moses' sister played her part, when Moses' mother played her part, the end result of that was God providing Moses, his deliverer, with his particular circumstances, which resulted in him being raised in the way that he should go. 
Moses here, whenever he's provided for, whenever he's saved, he's going to be brought up in Pharaoh's household, but he's raised among his own people. He's raised by his own mother in his household. She is paid to mother him. She doesn't have to do this in secret. She doesn't have to do this in fear. She doesn't have to keep hiding him. She's able to do it and say, yep, I am raising this Hebrew baby because Pharaoh's daughter told me to. She can walk around in public with him. She doesn't have to be afraid because she has the very protection of the one who is trying to kill other babies like that, that she's under. She can openly raise him, the one who is sentenced to death by Pharaoh, under the protection of Pharaoh and his household. Now, we don't know exactly how long before Moses was turned over to the royal family, how long he was raised by the the Israelites before he became part of the Egyptian royal family. But he would have been probably at least three or four. He could have been as old as like 12 before he was brought back into the royal family. Okay, he's raised among the Hebrews. His heritage is the Hebrews. Functionally, his people that he would feel, not just know genealogically, but that he would feel are his people, are the Hebrews. He knows their language. He knows his family history. He's told the promises of God to give them the land of Canaan, to to bring them out of Egypt one day, to take them out of slavery one day. Moses here, he's like a secret weapon in these circumstances. You couldn't ask for a deliverer to be brought up in a better way. I mean, he knows who he is. He loves his family. He loves his people. He knows what God's eventually going to do. And then he's just sent to the royal family as a prince. He's like a sleeper agent. He's the Manchurian candidate just waiting for God to say the word. And that's when the deliverance will happen. God here is meticulously working through all of these things to prepare Moses to deliver God's people out of slavery. But you'll notice in all these things, Moses is still a baby. He's not the active agent in any of this. But even as a baby, he's already equipped with God's promises given to him, through him, for him. That's the final provision of God's deliverer in today's text. God provides the deliverer's promise. He provides the deliverer's promise. Look back at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Like I said, Moses is raised, he's trained as a Hebrew, and then he's sent behind the enemy lines as an Egyptian. Okay, this would be like the president adopting a Russian spy. Okay, Moses is a son of God's people. He has the full knowledge of what that means. He's counted among the people of the promise. And he's sent to live a life among a people of sin, surrounded by his enemies. He's sent where he doesn't belong, where he's not naturally supposed to be, so that God's people can be delivered. He's an Egyptian Hebrew. One person, two nations. That name that he's given, it's it's a bilingual name. It's a name that had significance in both uh, Egyptian and Hebrew. It works in both languages. Pharaoh's daughter, she gave it to him to acknowledge his status, his history, his heritage. In Egyptian, that, that name means son of. It means born of. It would be common to to place that name actually at the end of another name, kind of like what what the Norse did, what we have in English, where you might hear someone named Carlson. Well, they're the son of 
Carl, Carl's son. Except Moses, his name equivalent for that for us would be son. He's not given who he would be the son of. He just has that end piece of his name. And there was a line of pharaohs who may have even been the ones in power at this time. They were called Thutmose. T-H-U-T-M-O-S-E. Thutmose, the, the first, the second, the third. The son of Thut. But Moses, he's not given a name for who he's the son of. Now, the, the likely obvious reason is like Pharaoh's daughter didn't know. She found him in a basket. What was she going to do? Call him basket son? She just said, ah, he's the son of someone. Son of someone out there. The son of no one. It wouldn't be crazy to, to think that every time this name is said in that household, it's a reminder that though Moses is a part of the household, he's a part of the household from the outside coming in. He's not a son of Thut in the same way that the other people in that house may have been. He's a son of who knows. He's set apart from the people he lived with. He's never fully a part of his adopted family because of his name. Some people think that she was actually trying to say that he's the son of the Nile. Because in Hebrew, that name, a very similar word, is the word for drawing out, for taking out. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says that. And Pharaoh's daughter even says, well, I'm naming him this because I drew him out of the water, out of the Nile. So you could say that he's the son of whatever he was drawn from, the son of the Nile. He has his foot in both camps. He's here and he's bridging the gap between the Hebrews and the Egyptians from the very beginning of his life, even in something as simple as the name that was given to him. But the craziest aspect of this, for those of us who know the story here, is that this name is also a name of promise. Drawn out, taken out from the water. You could even say here, delivered from the water. That, that absolutely does point to what's happening in this story, in our text today, that he's drawn out of the water in the basket, here in God's provision for Moses by him keeping him alive. That's part of it. Yeah, that's the obvious reason. But even more so, this is a promise of what God was going to do through Moses. That through the one who is drawn out, God was going to draw out his people. He was going to deliver his people out of the Nile's power, out of that water, through the water of the Red Sea. His name remembers, but it also promises. He's given an Egyptian name. It shows his allegiance to Pharaoh. It may, maybe even sounds kind of like the current Pharaoh's name. But he's also given a Hebrew name, unknowingly, unwittingly, proclaiming the defiant work of deliverance that God was going to use him to accomplish. Proclaiming the work that God was going to do through him. As we get closer to the end of this sermon, there are, there are two final aspects of this whole text that I kind of want to draw your attention to, that I want to try and put a bow on this passage. One, God's providence is evident, is evident at every step in the process of bringing forth his deliverer. God's providence is obvious in everything we read in this text. From Moses' family lineage to being part of the, the tribe of Levi, to giving him a mother who had the courage to save him when presumably that didn't happen for everybody, to keeping Moses alive in his little ark, to him being placed in a little ark itself, just like Noah, to remember that God has a plan to deliver his people in those same instances, in those same circumstances, 
to, to turning the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to pity toward him rather than rage toward him, knowing that her father's orders were being defied. To, to, to God allowing Moses to grow up in his own house for a time, to know his family, to know his history, to know the promises that are given to them. To the name Moses itself. God here is orchestrating every single tiny detail of this story. Every event so that his plans are going to come to fruition. And I think you could honestly, truthfully say that about any Bible story, right? I mean, that's never not true. It's not like there's any section where it's like, oh, God kind of stopped paying attention for that chapter. He's always here. He's always orchestrating things. But it's rarely as obvious as it is in this text without really being explicitly stated. God absolutely is going to deliver his people from their slavery. He's going to use Moses to do it. But he's not leaving any detail to chance. His salvation, it is as sure and steady and absolutely going to happen as the sun coming up. He wasn't let it going to not happen. The second aspect of this passage that you need to see very clearly here is that as great a deliverance as the Exodus is, as great a deliverer as Moses is, as much care and promise and providence as we see God exert in this story, in all these things, in bringing Moses forth, everything we see here, it's actually pointing to a greater deliverance of God's people by a greater deliverer. Jesus Christ the righteous, he was born to a specific tribe of Israel, the ones from whom the scepter would never depart. They would always produce God's chosen king. He was saved from a tyrant king's attempted genocide by God's provision. He was humble and lowly in his life, coming as a baby and in need of a mother's care. He was raised in the way he should go. He grew in wisdom and stature. He was one person with two natures. God and man, loosely similar to Moses' twin nationality. And his name, Jesus, God saves. It's given to show that he would save his people. Every single aspect of his life is a true and greater, a truer and better example of what we see in Moses. He would save his people through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for your sins and for mine, just as God delivered his people by drawing them out of slavery. As great as Moses is, and we'll see, he, he does a good job. God uses him mightily. Jesus is better in every way to the highest possible degree. As great as the exodus from slavery is, our exodus from sin and death, it's better. It's eternal. We never have to go back to that slavery. We're never in those same shackles again. You see, the deliverer, he has come to save his people. And the promise of Exodus is that you can experience that same salvation, that same deliverance from an even greater slavery in a greater way today. You can experience all those promises today from the truer and better Moses, the even greater deliverer who brings an even greater deliverance. And it's my prayer that that is what you see in this text today and throughout this entire book of Exodus. Let's pray.
God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to read your word with your people, to, to hear your gospel, to see Christ in every text. Thank you for the provision of a deliverer, not just Moses, who we're able to see in this text, who has so much impact on our Bibles, on your people, but even more so, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his life. Thank you for the circumstances through which you orchestrated our salvation, our deliverance out of slavery, sin, and death. Thank you for the hope and the promise that you won't leave any of these things to chance. But rather, you meticulously, you sovereignly, you providentially work all things for your purposes and for the good of those who love you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.